Hello and welcome back to this episode of the High Yield Podcast of Medicine. In this episode, we will discuss mixed connective tissue disease and Raynaud's phenomenon. What is mixed connective tissue disease? It's the rheumatologic overlap syndrome that includes features of SLE, systemic sclerosis, and polymyositis. What is the immunologic signature or hallmark of mixed connective tissue disease? The high titers of anti-U1 ribonucleoprotein antibodies. Remember, however, that these antibodies are not highly specific for mixed connective tissue disease. However, their high titers is considered highly suggestive for the diagnosis. What's the diagnostic challenge in MCTD? The fact that features of any of the three previously mentioned disorders will occur sequentially and not simultaneously in most cases. In other words, the typical case is a patient who had symptoms of SLE for a while and after a couple of years she demonstrates symptoms of scleroderma and after a while she demonstrates symptoms of polymyositis. For example, a patient who has malar rash then after a while demonstrate skin thickening or proximal weakness later on. What is the prognostic significance of anti-U1 RNP antibodies? It's associated with more severe disease activity such as early development of Raynaud's phenomenon, higher likelihood of pulmonary hypertension as well as presence of erosive arthritis. Now, what is the major cause of death in MCTD? Similar to systemic sclerosis, it is pulmonary hypertension. What is the clinical course of the disease? Patients usually have an initial non-specific symptoms such as fatigue, myalgia, arthralgia, and low-grade fever. And this is followed by symptoms of the three overlapping disorders. Patients demonstrate Raynaud phenomenon, hand edema and puffy fingers, synovitis, inflammatory myositis, sclerodactyly, and pulmonary hypertension. Less common presentation include trigeminal neuropathy, aseptic meningitis, acute abdomen, and digital gangrene. What less specific antibodies can be present in mixed connective tissue disease? We may have high titers of ANA and positive rheumatoid factors. True or false, presence of anti-U1 RNP antibodies confirm the diagnosis of mixed connective tissue disease. That is false. Why is it so? Because some other rheumatologic disorders can also demonstrate anti-U1 RNP antibodies, especially SLE. What is the significance for the presence of antibodies to double-strand DNA or SM antibodies? Studies have shown that both SLE and mixed connective tissue disease patients may have anti-U1 RNP antibodies, even though each one produces antibodies to a different domain of U1 ribonucleoprotein. Also, it's been observed that anti-double-strand DNA, anti-SM, and anti-Rho antibodies are occasionally seen in patients with mixed connective tissue disease, while they are more specific for SLE. So, perhaps the most high-yield question when it comes to differentiating mixed connective tissue disease from SLE is to know how to interpret these antibody tests. 
As a rule of thumb, please remember, if the dominant feature is high titer of anti-U1 RNP antibodies and only occasional or transient presence of antibodies to double-strand DNA, SM, and Rho, the diagnosis is mixed connective tissue disease. On the other side, presence of lower titers of anti-U1 RNP antibodies, but persistent or predominant antibodies to double-strand DNA, SM, and Rho are considered diagnostic for SLE. By the way, do you remember what is anti-SM antibodies? It's anti-Smith antibodies, and it's usually specific for the subtypes of SLE patients who don't have anti-double-strand DNA antibodies. What's the difference between anti-SM and anti-smooth muscle antibodies? Please don't confuse these two antibodies. Anti-SM or anti-Smith, which are the same, are these SLE-specific antibodies, while anti-smooth muscle antibody is seen in autoimmune hepatitis, special type 1 autoimmune hepatitis. Okay, and how mixed connective tissue disease is treated? Management is usual with immunomodulators such as azathioprine and methotrexate, plus management of the dominant feature of overlap syndrome, for example, management of SLE, systemic sclerosis, or polymyositis. Okay, next we are going to discuss Raynaud's phenomenon. What is Raynaud's phenomenon? It is an exaggerated vascular response to cold temperature or emotional stress. What's the hallmark of Raynaud's phenomenon? Sequential and sharply demarcated color changes in the skin, especially of digits. What's this sequence? White to blue to red. What's the mechanism of pallor or white skin color change? It's ischemia secondary to arteriolar vasospasm. What's the mechanism of blue color change? Hypoxia. And what is the mechanism of red change? That's reperfusion. In what demographic it's more common? Among young females and also among patients with positive family history. What's the difference between primary versus secondary Raynaud's phenomenon? Primary Raynaud's phenomenon is also known as idiopathic Raynaud's phenomenon or Raynaud's disease. It's a manifestation of Raynaud's phenomenon in a patient who does not demonstrate any evidence for a possible underlying cause. What's secondary Raynaud's phenomenon? Simply presence of Raynaud's phenomenon in patients with an underlying disease that can be the etiology. What conditions could be the underlying etiology for secondary type Raynaud's phenomenon? The three well-known rheumatologic disorders include SLE, rheumatoid arthritis, but most significantly systemic sclerosis, either the diffuse or limited variant such as CREST. Then we have vasoocclusive diseases, which are more a differential than an etiology. Then we have use of sympathomimetics. As we remember, vasomotor dysregulation is the pathogenesis. And an important category of etiologies for secondary Raynaud is hyperviscosity syndromes and paraproteinemias. So please always remember polycythemia, chronic myeloproliferative disease, multiple myeloma, Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, and cryoglobulinemias as the possible underlying etiologies for secondary Raynaud. Also, we have nicotine use and use of vibrating tools, such as jackhammers. Aside from these etiologic 
causes for secondary Raynaud's phenomenon. What clinical features can help differentiate primary from secondary Raynaud's phenomenon? In the primary form, it's more common, as we mentioned, among female patients who are younger than 30. It results in a symmetric involvement of digits, and there are usually no features of critical ischemia such as tissue injury or ulcerations. Most lab results such as ESR and ANA are also within normal range. Vascular exam and pulses are also normal. On the other side, in the secondary subtype, it's more common among male individuals who are older than 40 and they have symptoms of the underlying disease, as we mentioned. But most importantly, secondary Raynaud's phenomenon demonstrates signs of tissue ischemia and injury, such as numbness or digital ulceration. Also, symptoms could be present proximal to digits or toes, and they usually result in asymmetric involvement. Laboratory studies are usually abnormal in the secondary subtype. Now, talking about workup, what is the very first test to perform for establishing the diagnosis, especially in the secondary subtype. That's nail fold capillary exam. How is this test performed? A drop of oil is placed on patient's nail fold and the area is examined for capillary changes. The test is therefore referred to as nail fold capillaroscopy as well. Loss of nail fold capillaries in capillaroscopy for a patient with Raynaud's phenomenon indicates what underlying etiology this is specific to some extent for the diagnosis of systemic sclerosis. What other changes than loss of nail fold capillaries are possible in nail fold capillary exam? Enlargement or distortion of capillary loops. Once more, remember, performing the capillaroscopy is mandatory to establish the diagnosis of secondary Raynaud's, but it's just recommended for establishing the diagnosis of primary Raynaud's. In other words, primary Raynaud's phenomenon, also known as Raynaud's disease, could be a purely clinical diagnosis when you rule out other possible etiologies. Now, continuing our workup of the secondary Raynaud's, what are the initial labs which are ordered for the secondary type? Like that's the type with features of underlying disease or ischemic ulcerative finger changes. Initial labs include CBC, comprehensive metabolic profile, thyroid stimulating hormone, urine analysis, ANA and rheumatoid factor, ESR and CRP, and complement levels. Which one of these tests are considered serologic screening? Especially anti-nuclear antibodies considered the first screening test. Now, if the initial labs or initial serologic screening tests are positive, what's the next step? We evaluate the common underlying etiologies based on presence of their symptoms. So, if a patient with Raynaud's phenomena has sclerodactyly and digital ulcers, what is the next test to perform? Antitopoisomerase 1 antibody levels. If a patient with Raynaud's phenomenon has symptoms compatible with a vasculitis syndrome, what is the next test to perform? Usually arteriogram. By the way, what is the most common vasculitis that demonstrates secondary Raynaud's phenomenon? That's thromboangiitis obliterans. Now, if a patient has symptoms of myopathy, 
together with Reynard's phenomenon, what is the test to order creatinine kinase and specific antibodies to myopathy such as anti-JO1. For what patients with Reynard's phenomenon, we always perform complement levels, even though some resources recommend assessment of complement level for all patients with Reynard's phenomenon. It's specifically recommended in patients with symptoms of cryoglobulinemia or systemic lupus erythematosus. Remember, we measure C3 and C4 complement levels. And finally, if a patient has manifestations of paraproteinemia together with Reynolds phenomenon, what's the test to perform? That's SPEP or serum protein electrophoresis, that's PEP. So let's say you have an elderly patient with back pain and Reynolds phenomenon. After initial lab tests, what is the best test to perform? That's SPEP. Okay, let's discuss the management of Reynolds phenomenon. We usually manage the mild cases of Reynolds phenomenon regardless of primary or secondary type with non-pharmacologic treatments. Describe some of these non-pharmacologic recommendations. It includes mainly avoiding triggers such as cold exposure avoidance, avoiding vasoconstrictive drugs or maintaining body and especially digital warmth and also smoking cessation. When pharmacotherapy is recommended, if non-pharmacotherapeutic measures fail or if the patient has ischemic symptoms such as reduced pulse or finger ulceration. What is the first choice? While vasodilators are the backbone of treatment, the first choice is usually long-acting calcium channel blocker, preferably amlodipine. What are the alternatives? Phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors, topical nitrates, losartan. What's the next step? If a patient fails to respond to amlodipine, we add any of the alternatives. So think of two scenarios. One is a patient who has any possible contraindication to calcium channel blockers. We use the alternatives. But if a patient fails to respond to calcium channel blocker, we add the alternatives to the calcium channel blocker. Now, what agent is shown to reduce the risk of digital ulceration in addition to these vasodilators? Use of aspirin is also recommended to reduce the risk of digital ulcers. Now, we mentioned the etiologic differentials for secondary Reynolds phenomenon. That is the Reynolds phenomenon with positive nail fold capillaroscopy. But we have differential diagnosis of Reynolds phenomenon itself. These are the conditions that mimic some features of Reynolds phenomenon, but they are not Reynolds phenomenon. Can you list some of the differential diagnosis of Reynolds phenomenon? One is excessive cold sensitivity. The other is infectious endocarditis due to Janeville lesion and the atherothrombotic disease. The other is any vasculitis or any condition that causes occlusions of the vessels, such as external compression or emboli. The other condition is frostbite. We can also add hypothyroidism-induced cold vasospasm to this. Now, we have very important differential diagnosis of peripheral neuropathy because it can also manifest cold intolerance, numbness, and even possible color changes. How do we differentiate peripheral neuropathy from Reynolds phenomenon? The hallmark of peripheral neuropathy, of course, is abnormal neurologic sensory exam. A couple other conditions are erythromyalgia, acrocyanosis, and perineo or 
chilblains, which is skin rashes such as papules or nodules that occur after exposure to very cold temperatures. I will discuss all these differential diagnoses in the episodes dedicated to rheumatology differential diagnosis, but I would like to end this episode with a very important differential of Raynaud's phenomenon and that is CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome. What is it? It's pain, paresthesia, and vasomotor instability together with altered skin temperature that may result in altered color and temperature of the skin and thus resemble Raynaud's phenomenon. How do we differentiate this from Raynaud's phenomenon? In complex regional pain syndrome, there is muscle wasting and pain that's continuous, contrary to the intermittent pattern of pain seen in Raynaud's phenomenon. Thanks, this finishes our episode on mixed connective tissue disease and Raynaud's phenomenon.